The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everybody. So it's week seven tonight, and uh, we're looking, as you might have caught from the guided meditation, looking more specifically at the Buddhist teaching on rebirth, which is very much related to karma and really connected to uh, the teachings of liberation. And a lot of you know that uh, mindfulness has become very popular in Western psychological circles, this whole secular movement of mindfulness. And uh, one of the things that the Buddhist teachings on karma and, maybe controversially, the teachings on rebirth, right? they allow for this, these uh, teachings on liberation, which are different than how mindfulness is used in the secular world, which is, how do I manage being a human being? How do I manage the stress of being a human being? The stress of having desires and having fears and having responsibilities... And that's a, those are really good questions. And mindfulness, as we all know, does help us be a less stressful, neurotic human being. It does, right? It really helps. But we're still, uh, it's like, uh, I think a, and there's an article by Ajahn Punadamo on karma I was reading today. And he says, it's like rearranging the the furniture or the, you know, deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, you might get a better, less stressful sort of organization to your life, but we're still taking birth and death personally, right? So, I thought I'd start off by talking about karma and rebirth in a more traditional way, and then uh, talk about it in a more pragmatic way and hopefully save time for a group discussion. We'll end at 5 to 9. Judy's going to talk a little bit about Donna tonight. She generously volunteered to share her practice around Donna or generosity. So I wanted to start off by uh, just sharing a little bit from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who generally takes a pretty conservative or traditional because partly because he's a translator. And uh, many of you know this in Theravada Buddhism, and even the title Theravada means the teachings, the path of the elders. So it has a real conservative bent. And uh, you can see some of the etiquette, monastic etiquette, and the cultural aspects of this uh, monastic tradition, the Theravada tradition. It's really almost designed to keep the teachings protected, you know, from being diluted or forgotten or from, you know, being misinterpreted, which I think we can be grateful for, but it also, there's a shadow to that, right? There's a certain tightness and maybe even a certain arrogance that what's been very carefully preserved are the teachings of the Buddha, right? Because nobody really knows what the previous generations have done. All we know is that this is what was passed to us. So this is, you know, this is human nature and unavoidable. So uh, the reason I'm kind of setting this up this way is it's it's quite a interesting controversy now, even among even within the Theravada tradition, um, more classically or formally trained people in this tradition about how to use, how to hold the Buddhist teachings on karma and rebirth. Some thinking very strongly like Bhikkhu Bodhi that there's really no dharma, no liberating dharma, no liberating teachings from the Buddha unless you understand the Buddhist teachings on karma and rebirth. And other people, notably Stephen Batchelor, but there are others um, who feel like you know part of what the Buddha taught is you should uh, 
not believe in anything that you can't directly experience. And most people, I'm assuming most of us, don't have direct evidence of rebirth, right? Or other, some of the other traditional teachings of karma, that if you do this, then this happens to you in your next life, for example. So then these people like Stephen Batchelor and others might say, well, let's just at least put these aside because they can't be verified in our own experience. So that's what we're going to be exploring tonight. And uh, hopefully, if we haven't learned anything, at least we've learned one of the most useful teachings from the Buddha, which was or is to be suspicious of fixed views, to have an open mind, and to take a really pragmatic view. And that's, that's our approach, or at least the approach I'm recommending. You know, when we look at rebirth and karma in the sort of more mechanistic, you know, you do A, you get B kind of way, that we stay grounded in knowing that we don't know, right? And leave it at that. Stay open to everything because we know that we don't know. And then... As we play with these ideas, examine these ideas, it's more of this functional or pragmatic question. Who do I become when I frame things in this way? Like, uh, And this is, I'll, maybe I'll read it now so you can think of it as I'm talking, but also you can use it um, possibly for our small groups next week. <clears throat> Imagine for a few minutes that the Buddhist teachings on rebirth are true and that you will wander through an endless round of of births and deaths with varying samsaric pleasures and pains until you awaken. What shifts do you notice in how you view your life, your practice in this world? Or, you know, another experiment in truth might be, imagine for a few minutes that you hold what the Buddha calls a nihilistic view, that there is no future birth and no results of karma beyond this life. What shifts do you notice in how you view life, practice in the world, how you live your life, if you take that more one-life view? You're born and then you die. Imagine, and then the third, imagine for a few minutes that you rest in the mystery of truly not knowing what happens after death. What shifts do you notice in relationship to life, practice, and the world? Good questions. I'll remind us next week before the small groups and there are other sort of relevant questions here. (coughs) So first, the traditional view from Bhikkhu Bodhi This American Buddhist monk, he's been a monk for a long time, invaluable translator. So much of the blooming of Buddhism, Dharma here in the West is because Bhikkhu Bodhi and others have done a a really impressive job of translating the Pali texts into English. To accept, this is Bhikkhu Bodhi, to accept the law of Kama entails a radical transformation in our understanding of our relationship to the world. The twin doctrines of karma and rebirth enable us to see that the world in which we live is in important respects an external reflection of the internal cosmos of the mind. This does not mean that the external world can be reduced to a mental projection in in the way proposed by certain types of philosophical idealism. However, taken in conjunction, these two doctrines do show that the conditions under which we live closely correspond to the karmic tendencies of our minds. Like I read maybe early on, you know, we are what we think. With our minds, we create, construct the world. He goes on and writes, The reason why a living being is reborn into a particular realm is because in a previous life that being has generated the karma, right? The, um, the particular action of thought, speech, deed, 
which has left an impression, this is me talking, and then he writes, has generated the kama, the volitional action that leads to rebirth into that realm. Thus, in the final analysis, all the realms of existence have been formed, fashioned, and sustained by the mental activity of living beings. As the Buddha says, and he's quoting now from one of the discourses, for beings obstructed by ignorance and hindered by craving, kama is the field, consequences the seed, craving the moisture, for consciousness to be established in a new realm of existence, either inferior, middling, or superior. And one of the ways this is thought about, you might have heard this simile a bunch of, about a bunch of cows in a barn, you know, and it's a simile for the time of death and the relative importance of what the quality of the mind is at the time of death, right? You often hear that just even in non-Buddhist circles, like uh, it's really important, you know, what your mind is doing at the time of death. In the same way, it's really important what our mind is doing right now because the legacy of my mind right now is going to be reborn, cause the rebirth of my next moment of mind, this moment. Right? So the time of death in a sort of a understanding is really like understanding the time of the death of the body and that mind at the time of the death of the body is going to condition the next mind in the same way that this moment of mind is conditioning the next moment of mind. So if I'm in a funk right now, irritable, right, that framing, that way of being is condition, conditioning the next moment, which is, you know, that's why when we're in a funk, we tend to be in the funk the next moment until something relatively significant shows up and breaks the cycle, right? So the, the simile, a bunch of cows in a barn, and if there's a leader of the cows, you know, whatever, the top cow, well, then when that barn doors open, that's the first cow through the gate. Right? Because he's the or she's the lead cow. And then if it's uh you know, if there isn't a lead cow, then it will be the one closest to the gate. And if you know, they're all sort of so th- you see how that's like our mind, like if we have sort of a predominant quality of our mind to be irritable or to be generous or to be distracted, or to be mindful, that's going to be the cow through the gate. That's going to be the thought we have at the time of death. But if we haven't cultivated a particular sort of lead cow, then it's just going to be a bit, I don't know if random is the right word, but it will be fortuitous, like what thought is there? You know, it could be just a quirky thought. But that will be, uh, instrumental in, at least in some circles of thinking about this rebirthing process, where that next mind shows up, that next moment of mind shows up. So this uh, teaching on karma is really connected to right view, right? So mundane or sort of ordinary level right view, and I think I mentioned this week one or two, is that we sense that life is conditional, it's lawful, right? And uh, it matters what we do. We talked a lot about that the first couple of weeks, like just keeping in mind that what the mind is doing matters, and so that's the mundane level where we realize like it matters because some things my mind does are skillful and other ways, other things my mind does, other ways of relating 
are unskillful in the sense that it sets in motion stress. Or if it's skillful, sets in motion release, the absence of stress. So that's what we'd call mundane right view. And then liberating right view is, yeah, there is this lawfulness, but it doesn't refer back to anybody. Right? So there are those sort of lawful, natural processes that govern whatever this is that we're sensitive to, that we're seeing, that we're aware of. But with the arising of this, sometimes translated as super mundane right view, or um, sort of the ultimate right view, is seeing that Basically, understanding how the anatta, the not-self teachings, or the not-self insight, maybe better to say, how that doesn't liberate us or doesn't take us out of the world of karma, but it provides a liberating way to relate to karma, to cause and effect. And that's often misunderstood, like, Sometimes people think, well, when you see the empty nature of this, then I'm free of karma. But uh, remember that passage I quoted from Padmasa Sambhava, the, one of the great um, Buddhist saints uh, who was known for bringing, one of the people bringing <coughs> Buddhism up into Tibet maybe in the ninth century or so. But he said, although my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour, right? So that that awakening is really what allows us to fully engage and participate in the world of karma, that everything matters. Without being burdened, Because from a self point of view, everything matters makes us tight. I got a lot I have to pay attention to. There are a lot of mistakes I can make. And I don't want to make mistakes because I'll get burnt. So I'm going to be hyper vigilant. But that is a burden. But from an awakened point of view, it's much easier to give our heart completely to the world of karma that what we say, what we think, what we do matters. right? And that's what we would call a more pure, generous way of being in the world. Right? We give ourselves to the moment, each moment, we give ourselves generously to the moment because who we are, what we're thinking, what we're saying, what we're doing matters And it's not a burden to relate to karma as finely as a grain of barley flour because the mind relates to that attention and that work, that vigilance. It doesn't personalize that work, that engagement. So it's that pure, generous way of being or that, you know, love in action, I guess we could say. So this is from the Buddha's teachings, kind of describing those two levels of right view. Again, a very traditional teaching. And how is right view the forerunner? One discerns wrong view as wrong view, and right view as right view, right? So we're an ordinary person who's having enough wisdom to know the difference between what's skillful and unskillful. This is one's right view. And what is one's wrong view? Right? So right view is to be able to discern the difference between what's skillful and unskillful. Wrong view is to think, and I'll translate sort of what this means, there is nothing given, nothing offered, nothing sacrificed, there's no fruit or result of good or bad actions, There is no this world, no next world, no mother, no father, no spontaneously reborn beings, 
no priests, contemplatives who, fearing rightly, practicing rightly, proclaim this world and the next after having directly known and realized it for themselves, this is wrong view. Uh, so this is sort of provocative, you know. Hmm, what do we think about that? How does that align with our experience? So wrong view is there is nothing given, nothing offered, nothing sacrificed. So basically that means that there's no karma of generosity. It doesn't really, it's just stuff, you know. It doesn't make a difference to give. There's no fruit of the result of good or bad actions, right? No consequence. There's no this world or the next. So when this world ends, if we somehow didn't get our just desserts from our bad, naughty actions, we're lucky, right? Because, you know, I somehow I got to the end of my life, but I never got caught. I never got my just desserts from those bad things that I did. Or I never got rewarded for all that sacrifice, all that good stuff I did. No one noticed. You know, I didn't get my pat on my back. And I'm not going to get in my next life because this is it. You know, when I die, that's it. So thinking that is considered wrong view. No mother, no father. So in sort of traditional Buddhism, it's like we have this obligation because remember, this birth as a human is a really ideal birth. There's enough suffering to keep us from being spaced out in bliss, right? And more refined angelic realms, right? There's no incentive to pay attention and to sort of study things as they are. And in hellish realms, difficult realms, even within being human beings, we know people like that, you know, who have a really good fortune and they're just not interested in sort of taking a close look at things because they're figuring out, you know, how to renovate their beautiful homes or they're figuring out where to travel to next, or you know which delightful friend to spend the evening with, or something like that. So there's, you know, the human realm is considered a real boon, and the Buddha says it's not, we don't always get this sort of ideal situation where we have enough exposure to suffering, but not too much. And he likens it to a turtle swimming the four oceans, and in the four oceans, there exists one inner tube, only one. And once every hundred years, one turtle sticks its head through the surface, and the likelihood that that head of that turtle would go through that one inner tube floating in the four oceans, that's the probability of taking birth as a human being with these appropriate conditions to wake up. Again, I you know, it's sort of like, what do we do with that teaching? How can that teaching be useful? I mean, the obvious way to be, find that useful is to challenge complacency. Oh, I'll do it later. You know, I'll sit later. I'll wake up later. I'll study later. You know, when I retire, I'll have more time. Once the kids are grown and out of the house, you know, when I get healthy again, when I finally get my act together and do some serious yoga so I can sit more comfortably, then I'll really take up this contemplation of my heart, of my life. Right? We keep putting it off. So this teaching, like if it's going to be skillful, it is meant to be motivating. Right? In all those teachings of the endlessness of samsara, how many times? Maybe you even got a little of that in the guided sit tonight when we were really trying to notice the birth and death. And you might even get that intuition like, there have been a lot of these birth and deaths. You know, just like even on Monday, let alone, you know, however long it's been going on. So we want the sense of, um, like the mother, the father, the rebirths, like that, well, we've been spinning in these ways. And so this connection with our parents and the like our teachers, you know, it's, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I owe a debt to the good fortune that I have. 
And again, it's, it's not about believing that that's some absolute truth because we, we know that we don't know, right? So then, it's, then because we know that we don't know, then it's a question, is it a pragmatic truth? Who do I become when I sense an obligation to my important teachers, to my parents? Who, what kind of person do I become? And is that a skillful person to be? And who do I become when I don't feel that way about my parents or teachers or other sort of folks and situations that have been really supportive of this stuff, allowing me to sort of the good fortune to be reflective, to be curious, not overwhelmed by survival, basic survival, you know, not impoverished, for example, or not terribly sick my whole life or most of my life or oppressed by, you know, oppressive conditions. So we can be really, like, is it useful for us to be grateful, to realize, in the great scheme of things, this is a pretty uh, rare opportunity that I have, that I bumped into these good friends, right? Or I bumped into these teachings, that I was raised in this way, you know, good enough, not perfectly. Anybody raised perfectly by their parents? No, but good enough, right? The kind of conditions that we had, right? Good enough to be healthy and interested in looking at the mind in the way that we're interested in looking at the mind. And so now (coughs) the Buddha mentions these two types. And what is right view? Right view, I tell you, is of two sorts. There's right view with fermentations. That's an interesting translation, right? Right view that still has some rumblings in the heart. The mind isn't free. It isn't. So it's what we call that mundane right view. And he goes on, siding with merit, resulting in the, in the acquisition of becoming. Right. So you were still in the realm of becoming, becoming maybe a more a person or a, a being with more favorable conditions. And there's the noble right view, without fermentations, transcendent, a factor of the path. And he talks about that. So what is right view? Um, Looking for where he says where right view is. Oh, yeah. And what is right view? Uh, the, The sort of transcendent right view. Knowledge in terms of stress. Knowledge in terms of the origination of stress knowledge in terms of the cessation of stress, knowledge in terms of the way of practice leading to the ending of stress. This is called right view. So that's just the Four Noble Truths, as some of you, I'm sure, recognize. So even though there's some, uh, definitely some suttas, discourses that talk about things in a pretty mechanistic way. As I mentioned, we don't really know what the Buddha said and what was added. Some of you were in the Sutta study group here at the center, and we read Gil Fransdell's more recent book, The Buddha Before Buddhism, and that he's translating the Book of Eights, which is uh, widely considered an earlier discourse because it's mentioned in some of the other discourses from the time of the Buddha, right? So, even at the time of the Buddha, it was something that was repeated and used as a teaching. So it's considered one of the early discourses. And there the Buddha doesn't talk about karma in this sort of lifetime-to-lifetime way, interestingly. Now, you can't draw complete con- conclusions from that, but it's interesting. So the bu- but there are some discourses where the Buddha says, you know, if you do this, then in your next life this will happen to you. So I think it's just like good to hear that. But there are other discourses where the Buddha says that because of this, what I mentioned earlier about that moment, that one moment conditioning the next moment. So even at the time of death, that moment of mind is conditioning the next moment. It's just a more impactful moment because one body, one moment of being in this conditioned realm with this body tethered in this time and place, that gets sloughed off, 
that body ceases in that moment of death, physical death. So the last moment of the mind then is conditioning the mind in a different place, which I don't understand. And I'm like I said earlier, we, nobody probably here understands what that is, but it's interesting, right? And it's probably, I think, useful not to pretend that you know that that's wrong or not that you think it's right. But instead, like, well, that's interesting, and I know that I don't know. So, but what the Buddha says about that in one of the discourses, um, you know, he he rejected simplistic views. These are coming from a few different discourses where he's talking about karma. Like any attempt to nail it down, he says, whatever an individual feels is it, uh, that you have to reject whatever an individual feels is entirely caused by what was done before, right? This sort of more deterministic or linear. Because sometimes in another place he sort of names some of the causal factors, you know, like what happened in a previous lifetime might be one of them. But there are a lot of other possibilities, including, he says, wind, like indigestion. <laughs> like that might be affecting what's happening right now, just that you ate something earlier in the day and so that's why your mind is this way or that's why your body feels this way. Or maybe, you know, you kicked a cat in a previous lifetime. The point is, it, re- it keeps us from drawing simplistic conclusions. But we stay open. I know that I don't know. And another thing, All those who break the precepts, right, experience pain and distress in the here and now. Well, doesn't seem that that's true. We see people doing really rotten things, you know, and they may not be immediately suffering. So that's interesting, isn't it? You know, don't we feel sometimes like, when is the God of karma going to catch up and get those people who deserve punishment, you know, and give them what they deserve? We feel that way sometimes. that there's not this tit-for-tat. So instead, the Buddha teaches there are four kinds of persons to be found in the world. Right? Somebody who breaks the precepts, right? steals or kills, or, and takes birth in a bad destination, or takes birth in a good destination. <laughs> or someone who doesn't break the precepts and is reborn in a pleasant place, good place, or doesn't break the precepts and is born in a bad place. Right? Then the point of that I'm sure you get is you can't tell. Right? Because it's too complex. And in another place in the suttas, the Buddha says he talks about the results of karma as being one of the imponderables. There's just too much in play to figure it out. And to try to figure it out will be detrimental. It won't be helpful to try to figure out why is this happening to me now or why is this happening to Stan. You know, the sort of... Ajahn Sumedho has this great response, you know, when people... Because people, Buddhist teachers in particular, get this. So he gave this example. Maybe some of you read it. I think it's a great chapter, by the way, that uh, Rick scanned for us and it's part of three documents that was sent out last week. And it's uh, Ajahn Sumedho's chapter in his book, The Mind and the Way. And it's called Karma and Rebirth. And he says that, uh, so somebody, he gives the example of somebody asking, you know, I think it's an example of somebody, a really nice person who has really bad things happening to them. You know, the sort of classic example. The other version would be somebody really doing terrible things, but doesn't seem to get any bad results. Like, what's that about? And the, and, but in terms of the really good person having really difficult circumstances, what Ajahn Sumedho says is that when you take birth, right, so all we can say is that bad stuff is happening because the person took birth. Right? Because when we take birth, in a body, in a place like this, then we're subject to, and you know, the easy answer is the eight worldly winds, 
gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and blame, or praise and blame, fame and disrepute. Right? That's what comes from birth as a human. So it's not that being oppressed necessarily is a specific thing, but that part of the mind that desired life in a body, for example. Desired food. You need a body to eat food. right? So like, there's just speculating now. At the time of death, there's a mind moment. And in that mind moment, what's a common thing we might imagine in that mind moment? I don't want to die. Right? That's probably a very common thought to a mind that's not you know, unconscious. Like, I don't want this to go away. I don't want to lose this. So, if the body goes, but the mind is in a different trajectory than the body, right? the body and the mind tether together when life continues, but when the body dies, maybe the mind dies, we don't know, we know that we don't know, or maybe the mind, whatever that stream of the mind or the heart is, exists as a different trajectory than the trajectory of the body. And if that mind is very clear, strong, I want life. I don't want to die. Right? Well, we know right in this life that intentions matter. That intention leaves an impression. It has an effect. There are consequences to intention. So if that's a strong intention, or maybe that mind stream, whatever that is, finds a way to continue one mind conditioning the next mind, one mind moment conditioning the next mind moment, right? And it takes rebirth. And another, you know, whatever, another womb or another embryo or whatever it might be. Maybe there's a consequence to wanting to live. And see, this is this understanding is that the traditional Buddhist view, Theravada view for sure. And it's different than secular Buddhism, right? Because it's like the endlessness of birth and death. And you know, the Buddha has all these things like how many times were we brothers? Or I was your parent, you were my parent, you know, we were enemies, we were friends. How many times have we every scenario that could be played out has been played out over and over? But yet the mind keeps desiring rebirth more. And it, it's interesting, like, even when we get really fried looking for something entertaining to read or do, we always get reborn into looking another place for entertainment, right? We never wonder, maybe life isn't here, existence isn't here to entertain this idea of me. Maybe that whole project is sort of built on a house of cards. No, we always look for another place to be entertained. Something else that's juicy. Something else that will be enlivening, whatever it would be. Well, now I'll go to sleep, or now I'll see what's in the fridge, or now I'll go talk to my partner, or now I'll go mess with the cat, or now I'll... Rarely do we clean, but sometimes we even get so desperate, (laughs) now I'll put the dishes away bring order into my life. So just a little bit more of some of the traditional teachings that you find in the discourses, right? So in a mundane sense, the Buddhist, you know, kind of says, so if you want to be happy in this life, if you want happiness, just mundane, not liberating happiness, just ordinary, you know, the kind of happiness the ego wants, he says you need to do these four things. You need initiative, you need vigilance, you need admirable friends, right? Friends who will bring out the best qualities that you sort of pull out the good seeds that you have, tendencies that you have. 
and you have to maintain your livelihood in tune with non-harming, in si- with sila, right? Can't che- you can't make your living cheating because that will undermine your happiness in this life or you can't maintain your livelihood by causing harm to others because that will undermine your happiness. So you might want to write those down because we do want to be happy in this life. So like, okay, so what does initiative as opposed to imagining that I'm helpless or there's nothing I can do, right? Because that makes so much sense. Like if you put it in the negative, it really makes sense. If I have a chronic attitude that there's nothing I can do right now that will lead to my happiness in this life, is that going to be productive of happiness? No. And the opposite of vigilance is like once I'm sort of uh, pursuing happiness in some way to be negligent no. Like if I'm thinking that I'll be happy if I have a cabin on a lake in northern Minnesota, you know, you have the follow-through is important. So initiate to initiate, and then vigilance is really the follow-through. Hanging around with miserable, unhappy, mean people, will that lead to happiness? Probably not. And the last is, um, I mentioned, you know, maintaining one's livelihood in tune. So maintaining one's lively, livelihood through, you know, manipulation or stealing or harming. Probably not going to do it. And then if you want a happy rebirth in the tradition, faith and karma, right? Faith that this mind, the way the mind is, matters. Virtue, so this commitment to non-harming, generosity and contentment, and wisdom, discernment. That's what sets up happiness in the in a future life. You can check it out. <laughs> we'll meet in the next life. I remember Joseph Goldstein, you know, because it was a big push to get the forest refuge built, which is different than the retreat center. So there's Really, there are three campuses in Massachusetts. There's the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, which is not, it's sort of affiliated, but not under the umbrella of IMS, it's a meditation center, even though those leaders started it. But it's on the same campus at one end of the forest on the other side of the hill. And then there's the retreat center, so on the west side of the hill. And then on top of the hill, sort of, is the forest refuge. And when they were building the Forest Refuge, which is the place for longer-term practice and more independent practice, Joseph said, I'm building this so I have a place to practice in my next life. (laughs) And he really had that attitude, you know, like, what would be, what's the kind of place I'd want to practice at? So now these are. I wanted to share a couple more teachings, more how to use these traditional teachings in more pragmatic, in-the-moment ways. And one is from Ayakema, this German nun, um, was quite influential in Western Buddhism. She just uh, barely escaped. Uh, she was a Jewish, came from a Jewish family, in uh, maybe Berlin and just got out before World War II and um, was a refugee for a while, but eventually ended up in the L.A. area and uh, was a mom and then eventually got interested in Buddhism and ordained and was, uh, like I mentioned, a quite influential teacher for many Westerners. And she writes here, um, Rebirth is one of those subjects that often meet with fascination, hope, wishful thinking, and total rejection. One of the classic similes for rebirth is the one about the candle. A candle has burned down to its last little bit. A new candle is lit from the old flame, and then the old candle naturally goes out, and the new one is burning. There is evidently a new body of wax, but is it, but is it the same flame or a different flame? If you'd have an opinion, Paul, you'd find answers half for the same flame and half for a different flame. The truth is neither. What you have is a transference of energy. 
the heat has been transferred. Heat is energy, right? Or you could even say, this is me talking, you could say information. And this is what we have in rebirth, a transference of heat, energy, information. She goes on and writes, uh, a transference of the heat of our passion for life. So that's what I was talking about. So that's sort of a nice image, like the flame, the burning, is that identification with desire, with the desire to live, the desire to eat, the desire for pleasure, our passionate desire for survival, which does not diminish until enlightenment. One of the uh, once the Buddha was asked by the wanderer uh, Wachagatau uh, Gata, Sir, what happens to the enlightened one after death? Where does he go? The Buddha said, Wanderer, make a fire from the sticks that are lying around here. So he did, and he lit the fire. Then the Buddha said, Now throw some more sticks on it. He did, and the Buddha said, and the Buddha asked, <coughs> What's happening? And he answered. Oh, the fire's going well. And the Buddha said, now stop throwing sticks on it. After a while, the fire went out. The Buddha said to him, what happened to the fire? The fire's gone out, sir. And the Buddha said, well, where did it go? Did it go forward, backward, right, left, up, down? And the wanderer said, no, it didn't. It just went out. And the Buddha said, that's right. That's exactly what happens to the enlightened one after death. Right? Because... The enlightened one, so to you know, using that candle simile again, the flame's gone out, or there's nothing in the activity of the li- uh, of the life of the awakened one to light the candle, the next candle, right? So at the time of death, there may be intentions of kindness, there may be intentions of compassion, there may be intentions of letting go. But there's no intention to want to live. Interesting, like, interesting, isn't it? Like, and you might like have touched into experiences of equanimity. You know, where like, I'm happy to breathe in, I'm happy to breathe out. But if the in breath doesn't come, that's okay. If the out breath doesn't come, that's okay. It's like. It's the body's karma to breathe in and to breathe out. And the, you know, the motivation, you know, the motivation of compassion, it's like compassion is sort of a situational thing. Like you can imagine an awakened one, you know, and if they're not psychic, then they might not do something until they see suffering. And it's not even them sort of seeing suffering. There's just sensitivity with no neurotic desire. And then all of a sudden that sensitivity is sensitive to somebody's suffering. Right? And then that has an impact. And there's nothing refraining from that impact leading to a response. Because there's nothing neurotic, there's nothing dangerous in showing up, doing what can be done to be helpful in any moment. But at the time of death, right, there's no sense of a somebody who wants something to continue. That's why in Theravada Buddhism, especially in later schools, you know, there's this ideal of the bodhisattva who resolves to live for the benefit of all beings as many lifetimes as it takes for all beings. But the Buddha didn't teach that. It's a beautiful uh, idea, for sure. But it was really this arhat ideal, which was, you know, once the heart is awakened, one is only capable of compassionate action, living in that way. And then at the time of death, the fire goes out. That's it. It doesn't light another fire. That's why some of you have seen the uh, last line in the Metta Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness, will not be born again into this world is often how we chant it. It's like, well, that's a funny way to end a chant about loving kindness. You know, it's actually the technical translation is, will not be born again into another womb. 
right? Because the mind doesn't have that self-centered desire to continue. But it doesn't have the desire to end, right? Because if it did, then we're like, I'll commit, I'm awake, I'm going to commit suicide now because why bother with mosquitoes and helping people for the rest of my life and getting old and dealing with the discomforts of, you know, leaking bladder or the, you know, aching bones or whatever comes with old age. But the the mind neither has the desire for extinction or the desire for continuation because it's not misinterpreting what's happening as belonging to a self that cares about extinction or continuing. That has been that tendency to think of this in terms of the one who wants to continue or the one that wants to be done with it all, that kind of thinking evidently, I'm told, or the Buddha tells us rather, doesn't arise in the mind of an awakened one. So we'll see when we get there. May it be so. There are no more sticks thrown on the fire of passionate desire, of craving, of wanting to be, and the fire goes out. There is no kama, karma, being made by the enlightened one, so there is nothing to be reborn. With us, in whom there is no craving for survival, that, oh, I'm sorry, um, with us, in whom there is the craving for survival, that's our passport to rebirth. The heat of passion is the transference of energy. Sometimes the reverse side of the same passion arises. And that's what I was just talking about, like the passion for extinction. I think I covered all of this. And the last thing I'm going to share is just to support you in your sitting practice, just to continue a little bit in the vein that I tried to guide us in today in the guided sit which is desiring taking rebirth. It's a I think makes for a nice meditation where first do whatever you need to, even if it, you know, takes ten, fifteen, twenty minutes to settle, because it's not easy to observe desiring unless the body and mind is pretty settled, pretty peaceful. Because as long as our mind is identified with the desiring, we have no contrast to observe it. But when the mind has touched into some calm, some peace, and tranquility, then with that as more of the background of the heart, then when desiring naturally arises because of what's in motion in our hearts and minds, then we can see that as a kind of birth, that desiring to scratch the itch or adjust the posture or think about something, imagine something to judge, right? I mean, there's so many little and not so little movements of desire. And to kind of really cultivate that flavor, because once you do it in your sitting, then you can do it during the day and see like how many births, oh, this is who I am now. This is, it's this Mark who's living, expressing, and uh, setting emotion or leaving an impression. Right, the consequence in the heart, the impression in the heart, by how I am, who I am, how I'm relating, right? And then, and of course, once we wake up and we see the birth, then immediately that the next birth is the wise, the wisdom, right? The wise one, the sage. Oh yeah, it's just this lifetime being known. So there's just you're just catching the glimpse of the deluded one, the neurotic one. You're just getting the karmic taste of what's left, what impression was laid down by having taken birth as that. Because in that moment of being aware, you're actually the wise one, not leaving much of a trace, right? You're just aware of what previous trace was left, 
uh, left. But if you're the one, like if in that moment of awareness you're lamenting having laid down a trace, well then that's a, there's a trace to that too. When will I be done? Oh, poor me. This is hard. I don't want to be caught in the cycles of samsara. You know, our version, we don't say it like a Buddhist. We say, I'm tired of my mind. You know, I'm tired of obsessing about this. Why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep overeating? How many times have I eaten more at lunch than I should eat? You know, or why did I stay up so late watching that stupid show? Or why did I say that to that person today? Right? So it's sort of like feeling put upon by the conditioning of our heart and mind. That's really like wisdom to what, not to a perfect degree, but wisdom to some degree realizing the cycles of samsara. Oh my God, here I go again. Here I go again, laying down what I don't want to lay down. So next week we'll really look at, uh, we'll have our small groups of course, but we'll look at freedom. How does freedom arise in a world of karma? That's what we'll, and uh, I'll send out one more reading. But I I highly recommend uh, the uh, Ayakema article and the Ajahn uh, Sumedho um, chapter that I sent. And there's also the chapter by Joanna Macy that's quite good. It's a little bit more academic. It was, uh, the book was sort of a rewriting of her dissertation, I think. So it has kind of a little bit of an academic vibe, but you, some of you might find it quite useful. And I'll pass it over to Judy, who's going to share a few minutes about her understanding and reflections on Donna. Thanks, Judy, again for volunteering. My uh, my comments today are are really in a very simple language. And um, Doug, could you turn the second, uh, the one on the right side, up a little bit on top? You can just keep talking. That way, okay, they'll know. Yep. Uh, anyway, um, and yet I I feel like um, Donna is really a profound practice. So um, I think most everybody here knows that uh, the word is from the ancient Pali word for giving or generosity. And um, as a community, um, Common Ground uses this traditional Buddhist method, which supports normally the monks and the temples, and here to support our sangha and our teachers. And... <clears throat> you know, prax- practically speaking, that's we we don't um, because we operate under this model. We do not charge for any classes or retreats or anything like that, and we don't have any. When people ask, you know, well, gee, do you have? You know, I work in the office. People ask me, do you have suggested donations? And we we don't have suggested donations. And we don't have suggested donations for pledges or anything like that. And um, so we rely here and at Prairie Farm completely on this very old tradition in which the teachings are to be offered freely and received freely. And... Um, Wynn and Mark, when they started the center, made this decision to operate this way from the very beginning. <clears throat> and and I think it was really an extraordinary commitment to the teachings of the Buddha because, you know, I don't know, you know whether it was over 20 years ago when you all started, but anyway, somewhere between 20 and 25 years ago. Oh, it must have been 25. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking we had an anniversary. I should know that. (laughs) Well, anyway, um, 25 years ago, you can imagine there, there really wasn't a tradition of Buddhism in this country, and uh, there certainly was not a tradition of operating a center completely on donation. I mean, it really did not exist in our culture. So um, I'm really impressed when I think back about how 
this was a founding um, practice for our center. Um, and, and there weren't really other models, or if there, if there were, there was probably one. Um, so it was a real um, faith, in the, and faith in the practice, and tr- I experienced that as a faith in the practice, um, the teachings, and trust. And I, I think it's really remarkable that we operate completely on trust, um, uh, that things will continue, and if they don't, we'll, we'll somehow figure out what to do about that. <clears throat> um, so it's really this element of trust which drew me into Common Ground. It was a really liberating experience for me to not be burdened by other people's notions of of what I should be feeling about giving. And what it did was it allowed me to feel joyous in giving, which I really don't think I had experienced before. I had really not experienced consciously the joy of giving. Um, I had heard about it, but I hadn't experienced it myself. And, um, and this is what the Buddha taught. Um, so he said, the donor before giving is glad. While giving, his or her mind is inspired. And after giving is gratified. And I, I think about that a lot. And I, I, I just know the importance of that. Um, these are the three factors of the donor. The recipients are free of passion, free of aversion, and free of delusion. So there's a lot of responsibility about um, receiving that which has been given to you. And I think that's one of the things the center has done well is just really um, it, has, it has not pressured people to give. And it also has been trustworthy with the receipts of the giving. Um, I have worked with these, um, you know, just this practice of generosity um, to notice what feelings I have when I give in a variety of situations, big and small. I've noticed, for example, that even though our family uh, makes a large gift to Common Ground at the end of the year, um, I've been noticing or have noticed for a while that I was feeling the impulse to give at various other times. And so I made a change in my practice and decided that it's important to follow those impulses and to give any time I feel the impulse. Because all of our actions are habit-forming and continued giving inclines us to give again. And um, that giving comes from the heart, balanced by wisdom, but I feel like it's a real heart practice. Um, so, and, and on the other side, through, the, through this practice of generosity, we, um, we are able to see where we are closed, where we are holding back, and where we are fearful. And um, so the training has given me an opportunity to notice where I'm clinging. From very little things like I notice like there's one piece of pie left, and it's going to be split between me and my husband. We both love this piece of pie. And if, if it isn't split right down the middle, I'm, I'm working with my noticing my clinging. Like, I, he doesn't see this. He'll never know whether I took the bigger piece or not, right? But um, I've become more, even more noticing of these very small little tendencies to want to cling to what I want, which is the bigger piece. Um, so these are just, you know, little things, but I do think they just are just a part of the water drip method that's making changes, and um, I, I can feel it. <clears throat> so um, we can be generous in so many ways, um, and I am always astounded by the hundreds of people, literally, that volunteer at this center to keep it running from the beautiful flowers to, you know, cleaning the toilets, cleaning where the shoes are, 
um, volunteering to lead groups, um, being program hosts. I mean, you you name it. Um, it's all happening, and and I'm sure you've noticed this. But but there's an extraordinary number of people giving of their time. So I always want to let people know it's it's not how much you give, or maybe even this is the time where your life is such that you can it's best for you to just receive. I mean, you really do not need to go out and do more giving because that's not the right time for you. So you can come here, if that's your case, and simply graciously receive. That's a gift, too, to graciously receive. Um, So um, I just want to... um, I, I feel very grateful to Mark and Wynne for um, instituting this practice at Common Ground, and I, I just feel like it's a wonderful practice. Mm. Thank you so much, Judy. Yeah. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.